Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. There is one group of federal officials whose job it is to discover fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement in the government and to encourage efficient and effective operations. This is the U.S. Inspector General, a nonpartisan role that reports to both Congress and to the agency where they work. In a new book from the Brookings Institution Press titled U.S. Inspectors General, Truth Tellers in Turbulent Times, authors Charles Johnson and Catherine Newcomer explore the strategic environment in which IGs operate and explain how these public servants do their work. Johnson is Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Dean Emeritus of Liberal Arts at Texas A&M University. Newcomer is a professor of the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration at George Washington University. Also on today's program, senior fellow Molly Reynolds tells us what's happening in Congress. No surprise that it's impeachment, but she'll explain what could happen in the Senate should impeachment of the president be affirmed in the House. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find it. And now... Here's Brookings Press Director Bill Finan with Charles Johnson by phone and Catherine Newcomer in the Brookings Podcast Network studio. And thank you, Fred. Kathy and Charlie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. When this book first came to me, I thought it would find a place as a book that explains how a government office works that, as you note in your intro, occasionally finds its way into the headlines for some financial malfeasance. Little did I realize that as the book came to us from the printer that the term Inspector General would not only be in the headlines, but nearly everywhere else. The State Department IG, the Intelligence Agency IG, the Justice Department IG. I'm sure I'm missing one or two. My question to you is, how did you make that happen? (laughs) (laughs) I wish. (laughs) No, that's not really the question. My first question is, (laughs) what is an inspector general in the most simplified basic definition? An inspector general is a federal officer who is nonpartisan, or is supposed to be nonpartisan, and uh, whose job it is to ferret out uh, waste and fraud and mismanagement and to improve the efficiency of the federal government. Kathy, would you add right. to that? And it's the only federal official that is in a very interesting position that is just opposed between answering to both Congress and the head of the agency at the same time, literally at the same time, mm-hmm. and is viewed as someone who is totally impartial and not actually a member of either branch of government, but that is actually serving both at the same time. And there's actually two kinds of inspector generals. I was going to ask you about that. Right. Yeah. Some, they're presidentially appointed and they need to go through Senate confirmation. Those are for the large agencies, the large departments. But actually, the majority of the about 74 or DFE or designated federal entities, for example, can be very small organizations like the FCC. And they do not go through Senate confirmation. And they're actually hired just like you would a senior executive in any federal agency. How many IGs are there approximately in government? 74, right? Their agencies are, these IG offices are, of course, created by Congress and signed into law. Mm-hmm. And as Kathy just mentioned, roughly half of them are presidentially appointed, and the other half are appointed by the executive agencies themselves. And those that are presidentially appointed have to be confirmed by the Senate, you note? Yes. And so the ones who are appointed by agency heads are not Senate confirmed? No. No. 
An entire chapter of your book explains how someone becomes an inspector general. What are some of the essential aspects of becoming one, Charlie? There are no particular standards for it, except the legislation indicates that there's some background in auditing or investigation. That is, that they would bring some knowledge and wisdom in those areas, since those are the areas for the government for this particular position, and that they should be a nonpartisan appointment. In fact, a number of current IGs have a legal background, Mm -hmm. and many of the current IGs are drawn from federal agencies. They've had federal appointments before, many of them in offices of inspector general, although those are not requirements in law. So there's also the confirmation process, the background checks that are essential to this role, too. That's correct. The appointment process for the presidentially appointed and Senate-confirmed IGs is really quite extensive. A presidentially appointed IG would first have to go through the personnel process within the White House, which involves filling out a lot of forms and and giving information about your background and the like. Mm -hmm. And if their nomination gets to the point of actually going to Congress, then the relevant committees in Congress have another set of questions that are posed to the um, prospective nominees. And then there's the actual Senate hearing and confirmation process itself. So there's this conundrum that came to me when I was reading about these appointees and IGs. They're political appointees in the sense the ones who are appointed by the president are considered political appointees, and they're not like many of the others in government, as you know, 2.6 million employees of the government. But they're not supposed to be partisan. But isn't there a suggestion of a political tilt in an appointee when one administration wholesale dismisses all of the IGs from a previous administration or even some of them? Well, actually, you can't do that. (laughs) Oh, you can't? No, no. And I hesitate to call them political appointees because I don't want people to think that they have anything in common with people who may have, for example, worked on the campaign and, you know, get appointed to a position. These positions are very different in that you do have very clear expectations of background. And, in fact, if someone was perceived as too much of a partisan, they would probably not be able to get through the process. You note that I think it was the head of OMB, the IG for Office of Management and Budget, had been in this position for 20 years, and so that's over a couple of administrations. So there's a lot of carryover. Oh, yes. It's an open-ended appointment. Any IG may be dismissed at the will of the president or DFE appointees at the executive head or for where there is a board as a hiring authority where the board votes for termination. And if there's a decision by the president, and there's been very few such decisions, to fire an IG, then the president is obligated to inform Congress under current law 30 days before the termination as to the reasons that the IG is being terminated. One thing that struck me in reading through your book is that inspectors general have an enormous array of powers given to them, including subpoenas and access to information. Can you enumerate some of these powers that they have? to do their investigations? They are granted access to all documents within the agency. That is, they can go in and ask to see anything. Mm -hmm. They also have the authority to speak directly to the agency head. That is, the Secretary of State, the Attorney General. They don't have to go through some process to have an appointment with their heads. They also have and have acquired over time subpoena power, although it's not the same level of subpoena power that you have for a prosecutor, for example, for a U.S. attorney. 
And if you are on the investigative side of the IG, of Office of Inspector General, you are a federal law enforcement officer and are authorized, for example, to carry a weapon. Could I just add on to something that Charlie mentioned, is that the inspector general offices are not just unitary. In fact, they usually have three separate divisions. So you have the investigators, and Charlie was just alluding to that, who are like law enforcement officers. They're the ones that really go after the fraud and abuse sort of things that may lead to prosecutions. They don't do the prosecutions. They hand it over the Department of Justice, or it could be a state or local office. But the other two parts are the financial auditors, and they are literally following the money doing financial auditing. The third, and almost all of the agencies, have a group that do, they're called either the Office of Inspections and Evaluation or Inspections. And actually what they do is much closer to program evaluation work, to look at programs that may be perceived to be weak. For example, to look at strengthening internal controls, but not solely looking at financial. So if you say, like, I work for the IG, you could be in three very different kinds of roles. Another role IGs play has to deal with whistleblowers, something else that's been in the news recently. What officially is a whistleblower? Well, there are hotlines in every agency where people can report either anonymously, in other words, they could literally send a piece of paper in without their name, or they can go into the email address. And there are literally thousands and thousands of entries, submissions to hotlines in the agencies. For example, Department of Energy may get 7,000 a year. So then you have to have a sorting process. Mm -hmm. So the IG offices are not going to be able to follow up on 7,000 or 14,000 of these submissions. And so so they will sort. And some of them may, may be very minor, and some of them may be more broad. And so it could be just you feel you were looked over for a raise, or it could be that VA hospital is doing something they feel is fraudulent. So it's a huge range of these submissions that go into hotlines. And so the inspector general role when it comes to whistleblowing is to vet these? Yes. And then they take... Act on them. And mm-hmm. act on them. And Okay. Part of the structure of the office since they report both to the executive office and to Congress, that is an important authority in and of itself. So, for example, our recent IG case in which they received something from the whistleblower, Mm -hmm. the IG felt compelled to report that to the agency, which they did. This is the inspector general for the intelligence community, but also felt compelled that he was to report this to Congress. And otherwise, that could have been bottled up. Mm -hmm. So... What are some of the results we've seen from inspectors general collectively in terms of savings and criminal prosecutions? They seem to be the gold standard to rooting out waste, mismanagement, and abuse. You note in the book a few of these that sort of the more important cases that have been on the horizon in the last few years. Well, actually, in our book, we talk about in making a difference, it's typically not one report. But when you have a series of reports that are focusing on, for example, a series of reports at Department of Energy about the weatherization program, then you really get the attention of Congress. So Congress can go either like they're interested in something, then they look for the IG reports, or a series of IG reports bring something to their attention and they will take notice. That if you look back historically, IG reports have brought up some very interesting things that were not acted on. And yet later, when things really got bad, for example, financial crises or poor security airports, then you look back and go, oh, we actually did have some reports, but nobody paid attention. Often, because there are numbers involved, and it's usually large numbers, billions and millions of dollars, 
there's a focus on waste as measured by how many dollars spent in a way that's difficult to justify. But IT offices deal also with the non-financial and also where there are no arrests, where they talk about processes and whether they are efficient. And so across the 74 offices, there are a series of reports that often deal with some finances, sometimes investigations and fraud, but sometimes just talking about process and saying you don't have the right process involved or they're not running very efficiently. An interesting turn of events is that the many of those reports are now online in a website called oversight.gov that's run by the Council of Inspectors General. And that website's accessible to anyone Well, in the yes, every IG has their own website, and all of the reports by law go up on. So there's those reports. They also have semi-annual reports where they summarize how many recommendations they made. And there's basically two categories of money that citizens might be interested in. One, the wasted money or incorrectly used money. Say a contractor used money for something they shouldn't have used it for. And so they will say, hey, you shouldn't have used the money for that. That was illegal. There's another they call it better use funds, where they're really looking for better efficiencies to say, well, if you just change the process, you would be able to save money. So if you see, my point is that not all the monetary figures are things that have been misspent and somebody needs to go to jail for. Some of them, yes, but others are looking at internal process improvements to save money going forward. And there's lots of millions of dollars, as Charlie mentioned, that are listed and reported to SIGI. SIGI is an entity that we talk about in our book. It stands for Council of Inspectors General for On Integrity and Efficiency. And SIGI, if you just look up SIGI, you will see all sorts of data about numbers and recommendations and so on. They are the focal point that organizes and holds meetings on a monthly basis on the various members of the community. From reading your book, you also give the history of the evolution of the Office of Inspector General. And it began formally in 1978. That was part of the post-Watergate reform era, I guess, we can think of it that way. So it's only really been around a little bit over 40 years. And it seems to be an element of government that performs well. It's sort of a secret. Most people, most citizens, have no idea what offices of inspector general are, what they do. And in fact, they are very behind the scenes making improvements in the federal government that are extremely important. Inspector generals are going to be that one office that knows where the weaknesses are and what needs to be fixed in any agency. The Government Accountability Office, GAO, every other year has a high-risk series, which they identify areas and might be contracting, for example, across the government. But no IG is ever going to be surprised. They're the ones that actually know where there are areas that need attention in any agency. So they are an amazing resource. Coming in as a new secretary or a new director of an agency, that would be the first person I think they should consult. Tell me everything that I need to know about this agency. There are these islands of excellence in this so-called swamp. (laughs) That's Washington, D.C. Charlie, did you want to add anything? An important role that the IGs have assumed, but it wasn't really anticipated in the originating legislation in 1978, is that they're really critical to Congress as they perform their oversight function. Congress increasingly relies on the results of these reports that they file and the information they develop for their oversight of the agencies by various committees. So in many instances, 
for routine and sometimes for extraordinary occasions. The IG is one of the lead witnesses regarding a congressional oversight hearing because congressional staff has not grown as the government has grown. There has been simply increased reliance on IGs for information to fulfill their oversight responsibilities. You end your book by looking at the challenges facing inspectors general. Can you tell us some of the most important of those challenges? I think that going forward, the SIGI that I mentioned, that Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, is really the only group that could really support the community. The problem is they are severely under-resourced. Basically, Congress does not give them an ongoing budget. They just get money that is provided from the various inspector generals. And obviously, that's a hard way to get a budget Mm -hmm. because no one wants to really give up more of their own money for something. Yet, they are in the unique position to actually do better, for example, recruiting and vetting candidates for inspector general offices and so on. And they are totally separate from either the executive or the congressional branch. And so they are in that sweet spot and the ability to do a lot more. For example, they could provide some sort of peer review views for inspector generals. And please don't get me wrong, we have wonderful inspector generals that have been vetted, but there is no means other than if they do something really wrong, Mm -hmm. like illegal or something that just looks unethical. Basically, you don't remove them from office, but nobody is watching the watchdogs. Literally, unlike anybody listening to this, they don't have an annual performance review. Nobody sits down with them and says, how are you doing? And so that would be something, for example, SIGI as a totally independent group could organize some kind of a peer review. Mm -hmm. There are peer reviews of reports, but that's different. To look at the quality of the reports, that's just to say, are you adhering to the basics in the yellow book or the blue book of government auditing standards? That's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about that it just seems that anyone should have some kind of a performance appraisal. Right, some kind of oversight like Mm -hmm. that. Charlie. Another challenge that faces the federal government and the IG community is how the, is the appointment of IGs. Increasingly, there's been a delay in the process for the appointment of IGs, for example, to the point now where it can take literally over a year to have for a presidential appointment to be made in a routine process, and it has been increasing over time. There are various explanations for what is happening, whether that's intentionally slow by the president, whether it's a slowdown in the Senate, whether there's a problem with when a president of one party nominates a person to go to Congress that's controlled by another party. Some of those explanations may be true or depends on particular IG to be appointed, but the process is slowed down. And what that means is that Office of Inspector General may be headed by an acting IG. And while the GAO office last year completed a study on about acting appointments and concluded that it may not make much of a difference, our informal discussions with IGs and with agency leaders suggested that an acting may not be viewed as having the same level mm-hmm. of authority as fully appointed and vetted IG. So, for example, an acting IG might be wanting to become the IG. And so there is the perception that they may be less aggressive 
because they don't want to do anything that might affect their chances of being appointed. There's that. We actually, when we were formulating our recommendations, thought seriously about recommending terms and term limits. For example, say a five-year term, renewable for one more. Mm -hmm. However, upon consulting with a variety of experts, including actually a GAO had done a little study about 14 years ago in which a lot of experts said, no, 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 don't do that. Because that could even be worse because if somebody is just right up for renewal, again, it might have a chilling effect. And then you'd also have lame duck. And so we end up not recommending the set terms. But Charlie is right, and I just want to point out that it's been both during the Obama administrations and the Trump administration that we've had an alarming number of acting IGs because of the slowness of taking to get an IG appointed. It's just not a good situation. Is the office of the inspector general under threat in any way today? I'm thinking in larger terms how so many of our institutions and norms have come under attack since January 2017 and more dramatically with the beginnings of impeachment proceedings. I've not encountered anyone who said we need to get rid of the office of inspector general. Mm -hmm. I think they are supported to varying degrees in different agencies, but I don't think anyone is out to constrain the IG or to impose more obligations on them. If there is a threat, it's that they're being asked to do a lot of things and not getting the resources, as Kathy points mm-hmm. out, to accomplish those particular tasks. Let me mention that an issue of the term limits is a bit constrained when you understand that the average presidential appointment IG is only in office for about four years. Some are longer, some much longer, some as few as two years. And a DFE appointee IG the average time in office is about five years. So the idea of term limits are effectively not there for a very long time. And when they leave, they, of course, leave a lot of organizational memory or the office misses the organizational memory that the IG may possess. It is noteworthy that you have assistant IGs for inspections, assistant IG for financial audits, assistant IG for investigations. And so the people that are right below the top have longer tenures. And so you don't have to worry as much about the fact that you have somebody from the top leave as you would, for example, if you didn't have some longer term senior executives Mm -hmm. in place. Kathy and Charlie, thank you for this tour through the inspector general system. I don't think IGs will be far away from the headlines anytime soon, and your book is invaluable for understanding that office. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for taking the time to talk about it today. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you. Now, here's senior fellow Molly Reynolds with another edition of What's Happening in Congress. I'm Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. With a hearing featuring four constitutional law professors testifying before the House Judiciary Committee, the House's impeachment proceedings have moved into a new phase. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi reinforced this shift in a press conference where she announced that she was asking House committee chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment. What does the shift mean? First, it appears that an investigative part of the inquiry, focusing in recent weeks on depositions and public hearings in front of the House Intelligence Committee exploring the Trump administration's conduct in Ukraine and meant to gather evidence, is largely complete. Up next is a phase involving the presentation and consideration of that evidence. 
This discussion will take place in front of the House Judiciary Committee, but will also involve a presentation from the Intelligence Committee scheduled for next week, as well as, potentially, other hearings or presentations. This multi-committee dance, coordinated by the House's Democratic leadership, which has also included four other House panels, Oversight and Reform, Financial Services, Ways and Means, and Foreign Affairs, that have been conducting investigations of the president, illustrates a key dynamic of the contemporary House, the degree to which strategic decision-making in the chamber is primarily concentrated in the hands of the Speaker and her leadership team. What Speaker Pelosi left unsaid in her recent press conference in terms of details about the timing and the potential scope of articles of impeachment illuminates another, that one of the most important underlying goals of the Speaker is to maintain her majority in the House. In the context of impeachment, pursuing that end means having to balance demands from competing parts of the House Democratic Caucus. Some more moderate members, especially those from electorally vulnerable districts, have indicated they'd prefer a narrower set of articles focused on the Ukraine episode. It was the emergence of that story, after all, that marked a change in the tide of impeachment earlier this fall, bringing many previously reluctant members on board in favor of an inquiry. Some more liberal members of the party, however, have pushed for a broader set of articles that would include material from the report issued by special counsel Robert Mueller earlier this year. Pelosi is likely to favor an approach that minimizes public division on the floor of the House, especially given that the prospect of getting Republican votes in favor of articles of impeachment remains dim. But exactly what approach the House takes remains to be seen. Should the House approve one or more articles, the process would be sent over to the Senate for a trial, where there are also a large number of unanswered questions about how events would unfold. The Senate does have a set of rules for impeachment trials, which were last revised in 1986. They provide a basic schedule for a Senate trial, as well as the basic procedural outlines for how a trial would proceed. As with many aspects of the Senate, however, there's a substantial amount of detail that the written rules don't address specifically. And unlike other areas of Senate procedure, there is relatively limited previous precedent from presidential impeachment trials to fill in those details and to guide operations in this one. Reporting suggests that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell intends to at least attempt to seek some sort of bipartisan agreement with Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on some procedural components of a trial. If successful, this would follow the approach taken by their counterparts, Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, at the start of the Clinton impeachment trial in 1999. The bipartisan agreement reached by those leaders and approved by the Senate on a 100-0 vote addressed trial procedures while a later party-line vote concerned which specific witnesses would be called. Despite higher levels of partisan conflict and polarization now than in the late 1990s, McConnell and Schumer may still have an incentive to reach some kind of agreement, even a minimal one, if it reduces the amount of potential procedural uncertainty during the trial itself. Leaders are, of course, limited by what their respective caucuses are willing to support. In the case of impeachment, where the role of supermajority voting thresholds is more limited than in the Senate's usual legislative environment. This is likely to affect McConnell's approach in particular, as he may or may not have the support of 51 members of his conference for various approaches. But more broadly, power in the Senate, as in the House, increasingly flows through party leaders, with much of the legislative process unfolding through off-the-floor negotiations. An impeachment trial may well follow suit. When the Senate released its planned calendar for 2020 recently, it simply left off the month of January, indicating an unusual level of uncertainty about what's next on impeachment and what, come 2020, will be happening in Congress. 
To find more commentary and analysis about the impeachment of President Trump, find the FixGov blog on our website, brookings.edu, and look for the This Week in Impeachment series. King's Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Our intern this fall is Eowyn Fain. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.